Well, good morning. My name is Kent, if I don't know you. And we are tracking and have been tracking very slowly and methodically through the book of Exodus. But today, we are going to take some big jumps, or at least one big sweep, over the entirety of the plague narrative. It's probably the most famous portion, or one of the most famous portions of the entire book. If you have no idea what's going on in the rest of Exodus, the good news is if you probably get to today, you're like, okay, this is somewhat familiar. It doesn't make it any easier, both to absorb and to accept. However, as I just prayed, and I hope my prayer this morning and as I've been preparing has been that we would worship God and see him as more beautiful, not in spite of the plague narrative, but wholly because of it. And so we've been setting up the last couple weeks. I mean, the last two weeks, if you felt them, it was like drawing lines in the sand. Two weeks ago, we talked about the opposer that is demonstrated in the person of Pharaoh. But again, I demonstrated that I think this has to do so much more than just Pharaoh. This is this regular opposition character who shows up all throughout the Bible that is given many titles but never a name. And he shows himself to be formidable and to be completely against the things of our God, to be the anti-God figure. And then the week after that, you have then God reminding Moses, hey, but this is who I am. This is my personal name. This is what I will do. You keep your eyes on me and follow obediently, and you will receive all that I've promised you, all that I've said is true. And so just like in any fight, once both corners are announced, there's nothing but to let the bell ring and meet in the middle. And that's essentially what we have going on here. I won't be reading that, like, just straight 7 through 10, 29, um, because then this would be, like, three hours, and we've got to cook out at, after 11, after 11 a.m., so that's just not going to happen. But what I will be doing is I will be dropping down several times throughout the text, skipping around sometimes but trying to keep you with me. We just realized we got another box of Bibles, and the new ones have slightly different page numbers than the old ones. So that's awesome. And anyway, so I will try to give you a page number. If it's not exactly it, it's like two pages away. Uh, But first, just to start off, to kind of get into this idea, this tension that I'm already mentioning, let's just look at chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, and show you this is not God forced to show his dark underbelly. This is very much so willful. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. We'll get back to that. And the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them so that you may know that I am the Lord. I mean, again, the tension that we're experiencing is God is in no uncertain terms saying, 
hey, if you think these plagues are harsh, if you think I'm dealing severely with the Egyptians, you are right. And that is every bit my intention. And I have set the stage so that I might be remembered for generations as one who dealt severely and harshly with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And again, the, the reason that we balk on this is many, and we'll get to a few of them this morning, but not the least of which is we very much so know the heartbeat of our culture runs counter to this idea. That there are many in our culture that either see God as, if real, both loving and harsh, or there's many who see him as exclusively harsh. I listened to the story of a pastor who said he was out golfing with a friend, and of course, as they talked about, well, it's a, a new acquaintance, I guess, because they introduced themselves, they said what they do, he said, I'm a pastor, it ruined the conversation, the guy apologized for cussing on the previous hole, and eventually he says, so you believe in God, right? And he says, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the unique prerequisites to the job, yes. And he said, then can you ask your effing God why my wife still has cancer? Good question. And one that very much so is being asked by many in this room and certainly many, many, many outside of it. And so if we have to deal with God as who he reveals himself to be and not what I would like to edit him down to being, then we have to deal with the, the plague narrative. Again, I believe its result will be worshipful hearts, but that's up to the Spirit, not to me. So, as we set the stage, let's go back to this idea, because ultimately, here's what I want you to drive out of the plague narrative. Is that one, God is the ultimate authority in all that there is. And secondly, he will, because of his mercy, because of his mercy, use that ultimate power to judge and destroy the wicked. So, let's see. Let's look at this ultimate power, and it starts pretty quickly. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Interestingly enough, the word like is not in the language. The translators just put that in there so that you could just kind of get the idea. But truly it says, see, I have made you God. I have made you Elohim to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts. That's another term for armies. My people, uh, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, and when they, spoke, uh, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Brief side note on that. This is the last third of Moses' and Aaron's life. We know that because of what they eventually end at in 120. Just to let you know, if you're here 
and you feel like God has not yet produced all in you that you want him to produce, just know because we're such a young church, he might be waiting to use you greatly in the last third of your life. I, I forget, I think it's Moody who's quoted in saying, if you basically break up Moses' life into 40-year thirds, Moses spends 40 years thinking he's somebody, 40 years in a desert learning he's nobody, and then another 40 years being used as that nobody to become somebody. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So this is the third moment where we see Pharaoh, or not Pharaoh, Moses and God arguing over if this should go down, if Moses should be the one to declare, hey, let my people go. And again, he's coming back to, hey, I don't speak well. I mean, we just came out of that the last chapter. I can't do this. And it's borderline at this point meant to be comical because God's going to say these same things, the same, hey, go and I am with you. But at the same time, if you're actually just taking these people out of a flat narrative and putting them into real life, I mean, this is Moses going before Pharaoh. When it says, hey, I will make you God to him, it was very much so a subversive statement because Pharaoh himself was seen as Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra were not just one god of the Egyptians, but initially they were two. The god of Amun, who was the pre-existing, all-creator, all-powerful, invisible presence in all of the world. And then eventually they said, hey, I combo this guy up with Ra, the sun god, who brought life and everything and creation and everything that the sun touched was his power, similar to Mufasa. And with Amun and Ra together becoming the Amun-Ra, eventually you get the pharaohs declaring themselves of, I am Amun-Ra on earth. I am not just the representative, but they wore the exact same headdresses, shaved themselves, their facial hair into the exact same beards as that these gods were depicted as. The reason you have a very clear picture of what Pharaoh looks like and what his, uh, the, what his tomb and what his sarcophagus and all that looks like is because that was the image of their god and it was distinct. Every Pharaoh looked like that. You even get King Tut, Tutankhamun, who's the most known pharaoh, even though he relatively had a very short reign. He's just the one we found. But Tutankhamun, of course, in that, at the end of his name is Amun, as Amun-Ra. And so this is now Moses, a shepherd, blue-collar refugee, entering in before the most powerful nation who has openly enslaved anyone they desire and demanding that they let all their slaves who do all their work to go free. It's laughable. I mean, it would be 
the, in essence, not to make any sort of political point on this, but simply just to use the common illustration, if a refugee that comes to America who simply just finds a low-class job and works it for 40 years walks into all of the powers that be in our country and say, hey, I want you to let all the refugees just come in, it would be laughable to their power. I mean, they would say, thank you. We'll accept your suggestion is nothing more than that. And so, God gives him a tanin. This moment where he says, hey, throw down your staff and it'll become a snake. We've seen this before. And we're like, okay, this is just the whole staff to snake bit that God says, hey, do that before the leaders of the Israelites and they will believe that I've sent you. The only thing is, is it's a completely different word when it says the word serpent. In fact, serpent, I find to be kind of an interesting way to translate it. This word tanin, different than the previous time he threw his staff to become a serpent, almost every time is translated sea monster. I mean, you just go throughout all the scriptures, and every time it talks about the creatures of the deep and all that swim within them in the oceans, it's talking about tanins. And so this is not likely an actual just big python. This is something that if you were to think of the concept of the Leviathan or the Kraken, it's much bigger, much more destructive. I mean, people try to hypothesize exactly what this object looked like, and nobody has really any idea. But essentially what it was meant to uh, denote was this. This culture and all cultures at this time saw the sea as the embodiment of chaos destruction, and uncontrollability. Everything in them feared the sea, and the Leviathan, the Kraken, the whatever was down in the mystery of the deeps was the chaos within the chaos. And so God says to Moses and Aaron, hey, go throw down the staff, and it will become the embodiment of chaos before their eyes. And so they do so, and then, of course, you get everybody else, all this, I mean, this is the most sophisticated nation of its day, and all the magicians come, and they throw down their staffs, and all of a sudden, you've got tanins all over the place in the room. But, as we see, the ultimate trump card here is that God's tanin swallows up all of theirs. Now, I don't know if it was just like theirs was, like, God's was just stinking huge, and all of them were, like, kind of tiny, and they just, like, ate them all in one bite, or if it was just, like, there's like 100 death cage matches. They watched one after one with just blood splattering them and just like this one came out on top every single time. However that went down, the point is the same. They tossed down their staffs. Hey, we can do chaos too. We've ruled people by creating chaos too. But God says, no, no. You don't understand what chaos I can bring. You don't understand what is going to come and will swallow you up. It's a direct foreshadowing of them not just being swallowed up by the Tanin in the sea, but the Red Sea itself a few chapters later. And so, after that, Pharaoh again, it says he turns his heart. He sees this happen and his heart is hardened. And so God starts out with plague one. Plague one, of course, is uh, chapter seven, 
uh, the beginning of the chapter, but I'm going to read just to set it up, 14 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So, uh, or go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take your hand, the staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. A very clear thing also. This is not just him picking something. I mean, God doesn't pick any of these plagues randomly. Because the Egyptians worshipped the Nile, but even more specifically, they worshipped the god of Hopi or Happy, which they believed controlled the Nile, protected its fish, and protected the waters so that the Egyptians could have drinking water and water for their crops. Because just like you've learned, if you've watched any episode of Bear Grylls getting dropped into somewhere, you, if you want to live and find culture, find water, and you go upstream of it. Because cultures, still today, our largest cities are all surrounded by some source of water. It is the one thing that all of life needs for drinking, for watering crops, beachfront property. And so with this concept of needing water that if you have the Nile and you are built on it, then you are the most powerful nation. But all of a sudden, if you stop that source of life-giving water, if you destroy all the fish that the God is supposed to protect in there, destroy the very source of what they were supposed to protect you with, then you one-up that God. And that God is shown to be who that actually is. This is why, by the way, that when Pharaoh just says, hey, let's kill all the Hebrew boys, he doesn't just say, hey, just like break their necks and throw them in a ditch. He says, no, throw them into the Nile. It was an act of child sacrifice and worship to their God, who certainly, after all the children that were given to them, would protect them. And so God starts right there and says, by the way, how you destroyed my people, I will destroy you. Moving on, plague two, chapter eight, one through three. Then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Seems like a left turn, but we'll go in there. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. I mean, basically, he's just saying the frogs will be everywhere. It'd been a lot easier to say frogs will be everywhere. But of course, at that point, you got to be like, well, what does everywhere mean? Does that mean they're like just outside on the streets and on the grass and everything? It's like, no, they're in the house. They're in the houses. Holy cow. Like, I mean, but certainly they're not in the kneading bowls. Oh, they're in the kneading bowls. They're in the kneading bowls. Holy, holy cow. And so whatever that meant to them, it meant they are everywhere. Again, why frogs? This is the one where it's just like, if I'm picking my favorite plague, I'm picking frogs. Because, you know, it just like seems like the least intimidating of them all. But, of course, it was, again, very specific. They had a goddess. 
And the goddess was Haket, and Haket was the goddess of life and fertility and was embodied as a woman body with the head of a frog. And so again, both the Nile and uh, the frogs, the Haket, both of these gods were ultimately, what they were meant to do was bring fertility and bring life. And interestingly, both of them are then flipped to say then once the frogs all die off or once the Nile has all the fish die, it says that in both instances, the Egyptians smell death. God takes what was the source of life for them and changes it into the stench of death. Plague three, Nats eight sixteen through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all of the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So this is where the plagues really start to depart. Because up to this point, magicians, again, they could produce tannins that, yes, got eaten up, but they could at least produce them. And then with the Nile, they could do the whole blood trick, too. And then when they do the frogs, they produce more frogs, which is a really interesting way to kind of, like, try to keep pace. Because it's like, our whole land is covered with frogs. And it's like, well, we can do that, too. And now there's twice the amount of frogs. Like, this is not helpful whatsoever. Thank you very much. Like, what you really need to be able to do is take frogs away. And they couldn't do that. And so in this plague... They don't even have the capacity, and here's why. This is the first plague where there is actually life produced. Turning water to blood kills life. Pulling and drawing frogs out of the Nile, it says, hey, they just came out from the, they, they weren't created. But here he says, hey, smack your rod onto the dust, and I'm going to take dust and turn it into life, not unintentionally overlapping with Genesis. And so life is now produced. The magicians can't keep pace at any point and it, from this point forward and just clearly start to say, hey, this, this is God. Like, you need to stop. But it says Pharaoh doesn't. Interestingly enough, at this point, several of the plagues will not even mention if they cease or not, including this one. Plague four. It probably says Flies. But I'm going to try to convince you that I actually think it's more properly should say insects. Uh, so we go. Verse 21 is all we need for this. Uh, let's do 20, sorry. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the, uh, of the, uh, to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send a swarm of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Again, this word flies does not appear in the original text. In fact, it'd probably be more accurate to say it was a swarm of insects and we're not even 100% sure if it's flying insects. I mean, swarms, I think, made the translators think, okay, it's probably a flying insect. I mean, that's what swarm. But it's not exactly clear if that's true from the text. And so many people have believed that this is the scarab beetle that is being swarmed upon them. And again, the scarab beetle 
is important because it was the depiction of the god Kepri. And they worshipped the god Kepri and the scarab beetle because scarab beetles are also known as dung beetles, which seems like a real good choice for a god. But it was to them because the scarab or dung beetle lays its eggs in its own dung, and then when the larvae hatch, they eat that dung as food, and then just spontaneously, seemingly to all watching, appear and are created. And so because ancient cultures could only assume that they had the ability to just create themselves out of nothing, they thought this is truly a god power at work. And so Kepri is taken down in this moment by being swarmed with insects, if these are in fact insects and not, uh, and not uh, flies, in a way of saying, oh, I, I, I'm over this god too. Plague 5, chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the land of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And so in this moment, by going after the livestock, this is, again, a culture that we've already seen worshipped all sorts of animals. But in particular, there was the god of Apis. And Apis was the son of Ptah, who was the creator god of the Memphis region. And Apis, they believed, was a bull. And there was an actual sent intermediary to this world in the, an actual bull that was Apis, that this was a basically God incarnate. And so when Apis, this bull, they would discover this bull, they're like, hey, this is the God of Apis who has come and here to, if we treat this bull and treat this bull well and kindly, then Ptah will, will treat our livestock the same way. He basically became a mascot. And so everywhere they went, there was Apis, and he was, you know, had just this royal stable and, you know, just everything, all the greatest products that a bull would want. And they treated Apis in a way that they wanted to treat all of their livestock. They said, hey, we'll take care of your, your son, and then you'll take care of us. And so when the livestock is killed, all the Egyptians wake up, walk out, and look over to the stall of Apis, and he's dead very intentional message. This is also likely why when the Israelites are given the opportunity, he says, hey, hey, go, you can go and sacrifice in the land of Egypt. Moses said, are you kidding? Your people will kill us. They worship these animals. That's, these are an abomination, the kind of sacrifices we're going to do before our God. Who we are sacrificing, you worship as gods. This is also most likely why the Israelites, when they're out on Mount Sinai and they get a little bit stir-crazy, start worshiping a golden calf. They'd lived there for 430 years. You start to pick up some of the customs. And so, again, this plague really doesn't have a cease. I mean, it ceases in the, uh, or cessation. It ceases in the way that it doesn't continually kill animals, but they don't get those animals back either. And so we go on to 6. Plague of boils. Uh, eight through, chapter 9, verses 8 through 9. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become a fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So you can read about the severity of these boils in Deuteronomy 26. I mean, it, it apparently was rough. But of course, the magicians at this point can't even stand before Moses because of the pain of these boils. Interestingly enough, too, they take soot from the kiln. What were kilns used for at that time? Making bricks. And what was that soot but the remnants of bricks that were formed, the same bricks that these Israelites were enslaved to make? And so God says, hey, go take a big handful of soot from the brick kiln of which you have enslaved my people with, and it will now become the beatings that you gave them. Uh, lots of gods are uh, really thrown off in this one. Isis, who's the god of love, magic, and medicine. Imhotep, who's just the god of medicine, didn't get love and magic for some reason. Uh, and Sakmet, who's the healer of those afflicted by plagues. Interestingly, too, Sakmet is also the daughter of Ra. And as we already mentioned, Ra is the sun god, and is seen as with Amun when they combine them together, the ultimate God. Plague 7, hail. Really turning up the heat here. 9, 22 through 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. I feel like hail is kind of like shorting this plague. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. You can see already the, the start of, again, referencing the disintegration of all creation. I mean, you see here, it's going to be starting to talk about that, you know, hey, stretch out your hand or heaven and all the, over every plant of the field, all the land, every living thing. I mean, it's intentionally using Genesis language because ultimately what the plagues are, are a reversal of creation. God says, I'm the one who created everything. You think you make chaos? I'm the one who stood over the waters, the preformed earth, and took chaos and created beauty. But just as I created that beauty, and just as I sustain it through the word of my power, I can disintegrate everything. There's no limit to the amount of chaos I can bring in this world. And so... This hail, again, uh, was to go after the god of nut, which, N-U-T, god of nut. Goddess, actually, god of the sky, who was depicted as a nude woman overarching the earth and was to protect the Egyptians and the people who worshipped her from the dangers that would come from the sky. Plague eight, you get locusts. This is the one that at least it seemingly doesn't have uh, explicitly attached to a god, at least not that I found in my study this week. 
But this is basically get this big swarm of locusts that come in and they, they take out the rest of the crops. Anything that was left standing or hadn't already sprung up now gets taken out by locusts. Interestingly enough, too, this plague foreshadows two other events. One is the next plague. It says the locusts come and they blacken out the skies, which is going to uh, foreshadow the, the ninth plague that comes right after it, the plague of darkness. And then it says that also when Pharaoh finally pleads, I mean, regularly you have this Pharaoh coming and pleading and saying, hey, just take this away and we'll let you go. And then he just always rehardens after the relief comes or if the relief comes. But here in this moment when he says, hey, just take them away, it says that a wind comes and blows them into the Red Sea. Of course, foreshadowing the east wind that would part the Red Sea and drown not only the locusts, but those who prayed for the locusts or begged for the locusts to, be, uh, to leave them. And then you get plague nine, which is where we'll finish for our plagues today. We'll save plague 10 for its own week. But plague nine, plague of darkness, chapter 10. Verses 21-22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness, get this, to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. So, blocking out the sun is now the ultimate. Hey, who's just the strongest god of all of them, Egyptians? Wouldn't you certainly say it's Ra? Isn't that certainly who your pharaohs claim to be? Well, all of the other gods showed themselves to be weak in my power, and so now I end with a darkness you can feel. What must that have been like? Again, it's completely a backhanded slap to all of the gods they worshipped, one by one by one. Because Ra, of course, represented by the noonday sun, he ruled earth, he ruled sky, he ruled the underworld. And interestingly, after this plague, Pharaoh basically says, hey, go and leave and get out of here. Just leave your livestock. And Moses says, no deal not just because he was being a stickler for the rules, but he said, hey, the reason we're going out in the wilderness is to worship our God. We are going to make sacrifices and sing. We are not just being freed from slavery. We are being put into a song, a song of worship of our God who has released us and driven us out of this land. Again, one of the major themes of Exodus and the Bible is not this crazy concept of, hey, you're free, so go just do whatever you want. No, you're free from a bad master, and you're given a good one. You're given one who, yes, has much to say about what it is to be human, but he knows what it is to be human because he designed you. He knows what you need most. So he says, no, don't just go out and serve whatever whim or fancy or follow your bliss or do whatever you want to do. No, come and serve me, because that is where true life is found. So, first plagues, and again, 11 signs total with the Tanin, and very much so included. It was not a plague, but it was very much so a sign. You get just again and again and again this moment to saying, hey, I get you guys have a ton of gods, 
I get that you think they're very powerful. In fact, they had, some people estimate, 1,500 gods, and the worship would change even by the time of the year. I mean, it was an exhausting system of sacrificing and changing. Oh, we're worshiping this one now. Oh, but it's this one later. I mean, that's why there's several gods like overlap. I'm like, well, you're the god of fertility, but you're the god of fertility. Well, yeah, but you're spring and you're fall and you're whatever else. And so you literally had to always be checking the calendar and thinking about, okay, have I sacrificed and appeased these gods enough? And God, Yahweh, comes and shows very clearly, hey, this battle is no battle at all. This is not a yin and a yang of, oh, the even powers that are coming and forcing and clashing and who will win. There's no mystery here. This is a declaration of, hey, I took everything in this world and created it, and we are going to end with all things disintegrated. In fact, we will end in darkness. The opposite of let there be light is there will be a darkness that is felt. Of course, at this point, the only thing that remains is life itself, which will be challenged in the 10th plague. I want to draw a few things uh, by way of conclusion and, and application here. And the first is this. I've already made mention of it, but I want to really make it clear. You don't have mercy without judgment. They exist as the same side, or two sides of the same coin. It's interesting. There's ten plagues to drive the Egyptians out. And then there's ten commandments to retrain them to what life was meant to be. It's interesting, people talk about, like, of course, Ten Commandments are just the first ten, and, and, and really, in many ways, all of the commandments that come after them, even though there's many ceremonial and all these sacrificial commandments, all those things. I mean, so much of what we know and, and think of as the morality and the teaching of what it is to be human comes from the Ten Commandments. And many people just, you know, of course, balk at the sense, I mean, we're Westerners, right? We just balk at the sense of anybody telling us anything, and just like, well, you know, keep your commandments off me. Thank you. But you have to remember, this was a slave people. They had no culture. When God lays out not just his 10, but his remaining 600 plus commandments, he's gifting culture. He's saying, hey, here's your customs. Here's who you are. Don't follow the customs you picked up over there. I want to completely reset what you think it is to be human because that's what I came to do. And so 10 plagues drive them out and then 10 commandments precede their entry in the promised land. Because God is saying, hey, there is evil. There is wickedness. There are ways that you have tied yourself to activity and desire in a way that will not only destroy everyone around you, but then in the end, it will burn you out as a shell of a car too. And so I created a people I love. And because I love them, and because I have mercy on them, I will break their grip from all that they hold that will eventually destroy them. I mean, if you love someone who's an addict, if you really love them, you hate the heroin that drives them to do what they do. And so God says, hey, this is my mercy. You want to see my wrath? It's towards the people I just say, go for it.
live it up until it destroys you. But he comes to a people and he gives them mercy. And he shows also in this narrative that the worship of idols, sin itself and rebellion against God is ultimately disintegrating. Again, if you think of any deep sin in your life, whether current or past, are you more free since you started? Has it brought more life or taken it? Is it brought joy and life to the full, unity with all people, or has it systematically destroyed that? And don't fool ourselves. We are enslaved by it. And if you think the classic, oh, I can stop anytime I want, do it today for six months. Stop. And find out how hard you've been enslaved by it. Interestingly enough, it's really clear all throughout the book of Exodus where it's going to talk about, hey, just Moses and Aaron obeyed. And life comes. And it's very clear. Moses is literally just depicted as nothing special. He's just though reluctant at first, crazy obedient because he starts to like grow in this confidence of like, oh, when I obey, I actually believe that God's going to do what he does because he keeps doing it. And so it's this concept that, hey, the path to freedom, really unsexy, is obedience. Really uncool, I know. <laughs> Let me define obedience really quickly. Doing what God says. It's as profound as we need to make it. And so as application to all of us, myself included, one of the biggest applications we'd be remiss not to say is asking ourselves to examine our heart, asking the spirit to reveal any way within us which does not allow, align to the life-giving paths of our God. To break bonds of slavery we could name specific ones I have in the past, but I have a good feeling we just all can let the Spirit do that work today, tomorrow, this week. Okay, we've got to address the hardening. Um, worship of God's sin, rebellion, is disintegrating, and also worship of idols, sorry, not God, but idols, sin and rebellion, of God, uh, rebellion against God is also a hardening factor. Because again, like you see several times of God saying, hey, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, or I have hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then sometimes Pharaoh was hardening his own heart. In fact, you get, uh, it's it very easy. It breaks down three, six, and nine. Uh, three times that Pharaoh says that, it says Pharaoh decidedly hardens his own heart. Six times where it does not assign any being or any thought towards what is hardening his heart. And then nine times exclusively, it says that God hardens his heart. And so in that, you get this point of like, well, uh, how dare God? Are we just robots? Are we just puppets? I mean, he, he says several times, I've raised this people up. I'm going to show my power in them. I'm going to show it in many acts of judgment, but yet he's hardening. I mean, how dare he? If that is God, then he's not worthy of being worshipped. That's what many of us and myself have looked up in the sky and said. But ultimately, 
this hardening is way more complex to be broken down into a binary. Is it God's fault? Is it human's fault? I mean, even the word hardening has multiple definitions that were probably understood. I mean, it has a wide lexical range. I mean, if I take a word with a wide lexical range, like if I just say the word love, I mean, it's a wide lexical range. That could mean like I love you as my spouse, or that means I like fruity pebbles, and that's the same thing. And that's a wide lexical range that all is in the word love. And so this word similarly has many different ways it could break out. And one is actually literally just heavy. It refers to a heavy heart. And that would have spoken to them because on all the sarcophaguses of the pharaohs of Egypt, there was a balance of scales on one side a heart and on the other side a feather. And it speaks to this myth that they had of one person journeying to the gods who weighed that one's heart on a scale against the feather of righteousness. And the concept of if his, he- if his heart was heavy and weighed down with wickedness, it would tip the scales and raise the, the feather of righteousness, and he was judged as condemned. And so when God's saying all throughout this narrative, hey, that, that Pharaoh's heart is hard, in many ways it's referring to the fact that they just would have known, hey, he's got a wicked heavy heart that would not stand up to that scale. And then so, other definitions of the word can mean stubborn or interesting. I, I think a better way to maybe say it is the numbing of a soul. This is from Nah- uh, Nahum Sarna, a theologian who writes this. Hardening of the heart connotes a willful suppression of the capacity for reflection, for self-examination, for unbiased judgment about good and evil. In short, the hardening of the heart becomes synonymous with the numbing of the soul, a condition of moral atrophy. It's this willful suppression. It's this, hey, the more I run away from the way that God has designed me, the more I want to. In fact, we all know that there's something in us that just many times seems to control us to do that which we do not wish to do. It doesn't even have to be moral. I mean, every single night, every single night, I'm sitting in my house, minding my own business, and all of a sudden I hear a voice that just says, be truth, all good things. And I'm like, what is that? And I hear it continuing to just say, I'll give you everything you want. I'm here for you. And I'm like, is, is someone in the kitchen? And I walk around the corner of the kitchen, and I kid you not, bottom loader freezer drawer is popped open, and the bluebell ice cream is peeking out. <laughs> and I say, hello. <laughs> and it says, not even saying with the pleasantry, it's just, I will give you all that you desire. And, and I say to myself, no, you can't do that. You can't. I, you cannot give me everything I desire. And it says, no, I know I can't because I couldn't also give you brownies. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, like there's that moment of like, how did you learn how to bake? You know, and, and, and how did you not melt when you took it? It's amazing. And it just proves that what that bluebell carton says to be true because it's a mythical being. And... Then like a half hour later, I'm like, I feel like crap. And this is the regular rhythm of my life. It'll happen tonight. It'll happen tomorrow. Um, It doesn't matter. And it just has this proof that even if it's like that or if it's much more moral, there's something in our hearts that's very much so controlled and bent away from the patterns in which we wish to walk. Nobody wants to sin. I mean, we do. But ultimately, as I've already said, when it takes everything from you, you no longer want to. But you just... You can't. You're hard at this point. And I know that doesn't deal with so much of the rest of the complexity of God saying clearly, hey, I'm going to do this, but 
But let me just continue to press into you. I think this issue should always make our minds feel small. I mean, that's why I always come back to Matthew 26, 23 through 24, when Jesus, on the night before he's betrayed, looks around at all the disciples and they're saying like, hey, am I going to betray you? Is it me? Is it me? And eventually he says, he answered, he who dipped his hand in the dish will, uh, with me will betray me. The son of man, listen to this, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Do you hear both? And the Bible is completely unapologetic about it. Like, it, the Son of Man goes as it is written. This has been written a long time ago. But woe to you who do it. It doesn't remove an ounce of responsibility. And of course, it just like sits there with our minds. Well, if like, if this is true, then this must be true. And eventually it's meant to make you feel dumb. I mean, all throughout the scripture, it's meant to make you maybe not dumb, but just like inadequate. It's not anti-logical. It's super logical. It's meta-logical. It's something that you can't conceive of, which the scripture is full of. This is just the one that strikes the closest to our Western sensibilities. I think D.A. Carson really helpfully says that this long book drawn out about, hey, what is, is it responsibility? Is it sovereignty? Is it God? Is it man? And he writes this whole book where he just gets all the data out there, puts it forward, and at the very end he just says, it's a coin, accept both sides. Every single time someone comes like, I figured out the analogy. I'm just like, eh, probably not. Because if you can understand it, then you don't have a God. You have something that you made. If, if your God has to make sense to you, then how did he do all that he's done? How is he all that he is? I mean, can you explain the fact that he's outside of time? Again, we don't really wrestle with that one, but, but can you explain that? Or does it make your mind feel small? Does it make you feel like a created being that is far inferior to the creator who created them? Ultimately, interestingly enough, the people of this day were not at all concerned about the question of, is Pharaoh free from God? They actually were concerned with the opposite. Is God free over the wicked decisions of man? Can God make good on his promises that he did long ago, even though there's all these independent, willful, destructive, evil, chaotic forces in his midst? Is he free to do good even in that scenario? Is he free to rise above the created destroyers of his creation to recreate new creation? And Exodus is the constant declaring, uh, God constantly declaring, I am more powerful than that which tries to subvert me. It's not about man's freedom. It's about God's. I am a free being. Just really quick here. We just have to end with these simple, going back to this whole idea that we really struggle, though, with this idea of God because ultimately it's revealing his power. And we really struggle with a God of power. I mean, we appropriately shudder when we get near to a God that is much, 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 much more powerful than we ever give him credit for or that we could ever handle. Because ultimately, there's just this sense that we want to like round off that power and make him the Jesus who holds the lamb, which is not an insufficient picture of God. It's just incomplete. And so 
yes, it's hard to hold on and stand before a God who ultimately is powerful and says, I can do all that I want. I'm completely free. But you can't forget ultimately throughout the scriptures what God says about his power and that he says ultimately that his power is for us, not against us. That's the main concept he's driving at in Romans 8. Hey, my power is for you, not against you. It's also necessary for salvation. That's Romans 1. Hey, my power is necessary for anyone to be saved. And it's also in us. He says that to Timothy, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Or in 1 John 4, it says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Because ultimately it says that God put his power in us, and like he said to Timothy, he gave us his power ultimately to obey and walk in the way in which we were designed to walk. To look like ones who are following after the image of Jesus. Our whole spiritual formation doesn't rise and fall on your technique. It's the power of God within you. That's the whole point of Galatians. Of there's a spirit that produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not anything that you do on Tuesday, though he partners with that in a crazy way that I can't explain. Add it to the list. And so you see the power of God. You see the protection of God. Regularly throughout the plagues, he starts then distinguishing, hey, I'm going to protect my people because I have the power to do that too. And then you see the patience of God. It's 10 plagues, 11 signs. Not five, not three, not one. I mean, could have, Tanin, no, <laughs> dead. It was, a, it was on the table. But ultimately, he says, and every single time, hey, I will do this, and if you don't, if you relent, if you release, then this will pass. Even ultimately in the Passover, there is a doorway out. Because God's judgment is always wrapped with his mercy. They're never apart from each other. And ultimately, it shows his purpose. I don't have time um, to go through all these, but if you basically want to read through 717, 810, 822, 914, 916, and 10-2, all talk about what God is doing. And he says, I'm doing all this so that people would see me and know me. That this is me displaying my might and my power. And then what's so beautiful about that is 1238. If you want to look at it with me. In the section called the Exodus, when the people are driven out, you get 1238. A mixed multitude also went up with them and a very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Here's my question. What's it mean mixed multitude? Because it's not just Israelites who are driven out. This is filled with Egyptians. That throughout the plague narrative, God is constantly saying, I am displaying who I am, and I am cutting out the feet of every God that these people worship. Because some people are going to come with us. Some people are going to be free. Some people are going to stop putting their faith in some frog-headed goddess and properly place it in me who will lead them out to their freedom. It's the beauty of God's purpose is that he calls and people come alive. And so with no time to make any other beautiful, wonderful done transition to communion, let's just take communion. Representing both the wrath and the mercy of God.
that's what people always talk about. Like, man, the Old Testament's so wrathful, and, and the New Testament's so gracious. Like, all of a sudden, you know, Jesus came home from college with all these liberal ideas, like grace. And I always want to point to the fact where it's like, hey, there's a ton of times where Jesus himself says there will be judgment. And the most judgment-filled moment of the entire Bible is when God is judged and damned and obliterated on a cross. But the ironic moment of the cross is that it literally is the coin that holds wrath and mercy together. That again, quoting Carson, I think, who said it, is that the cross is where wrath and mercy kiss and fully meet together. There's no more wrathful moment in the scriptures. There's no more merciful one. And so let's come, those who are putting their faith in that God and not in the idols of our world, whether they have frog heads or they have Wi-Fi capabilities. Let's come and take of the bread, tearing it off and dipping it in the cup and come and remember that we are redeemed by the most wrathful moment of human history. Let's pray. Father God, give us the grace to, again, be shaped by a hard word. If hard words make soft hearts and soft words make hard hearts, then I pray that we would be a soft-hearted people that would be in worship of who you reveal yourself to be because it's so much better than who we would write you to be because we couldn't conceive of something as beautiful and as powerful as you. We pray that in your son's name. Amen.